Hello, I'm Edith Chakraborty and this is a business. Coming up on this week's podcast, as BT axes its graduate recruitment scheme, we look at the job prospects for students fresh out of university and ask, whatever happened to the milk round? Ben Bernanke gets another four years as chairman of America Central Bank. But is Helicopter Ben really the right man for the job? And Rupert Murdoch no longer wants to give his media away for nothing. Is this the beginning of the end of the free lunch? I'm Edith Chakraborty, and this is The Business from The Guardian. And it's a full house this week. Here with me in the studio is Ashley Seeger from The Guardian's crack economics team. Welcome back, Ashley. And since we're discussing free stuff this week, what's the best freebie you've ever had? Oh, put me on the spot, rather. Um, that Roger Booter report on inflation in the 1990s must have gone down. Beautiful. That's actually top of the list, obviously. <laughs> and we have the reliably cerebral Heather Stewart. What gratis goodies have you received, Heather? Very few. We, we're on the wrong section for that. I think we, we mostly get very heavy tomes on the economics desk. No, nothing very exciting Lunches at all. Lunches with the Governor of the Bank of England in account? Mm, last time we went for lunch at the Governor of the Bank of England, the chef at the Bank of England was ill and we got um, rancid sandwiches from a cafe around the corner. So I, <laughs> not, even, not even that, I regret to say. Yes, they all have um, swine flu, the yeah. catering staff. The bank didn't want to tell us because they knew we'd write it in the paper. Well, we've also got Dan Roberts, leader of the business pack, and Dan... I'm expecting you to put in a good showing here. What freebies have you received? Oh, I've had to start handing mine around the desk, actually. I've got the mickey taken out of me for accepting um, a trip to the cricket, so I've started sort of uh, sharing now. We'll hold you to that, Dan. (laughs) Now, there was a time when having a university degree was a passport to a steady job and a rewarding career. Just think back to television's archetypal students. So, uh, what can I do for you? Uh, oh, yeah, well, it's about joining the police force, but I don't think I'm, you know, correctly job-motivated. Oh, for sure you are, for sure. Hey, there's only one thing you need to know to be a policeman, you know? Yeah. Really, one thing you have to do, and that you have to be able to go... <laughs> for when you are talking into your radio, you know? You go... <laughs> yes, even in the 80s, a hapless hippie like Neil could still score a job, as long as he was a graduate. Fast forward to the recession in 2009, however, and it's a different story. This week, telecoms giant BT announced it was shutting down its graduate trainee scheme. And the Gardens reported that no less an institution than Cambridge University is now ringing around employers, asking if they've got any spare jobs going. Ashley, that story's your handiwork, so let's begin with you. Is this anything more than a little local difficulty for sports science graduates and media studies students? Well, you, you might think that, given that far more... 18-year-olds go to university than, than did 20 years ago when Neil was at university. But it, but it does seem to be true that if, if Cambridge is having trouble placing its graduates, there's clearly something going on. And that something going on is that employment in the economy is falling rapidly. And the easiest thing for many firms to do rather than fire people is to, is to shut the door on the way in. And give us some numbers. How bad is it? Well, the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development think that graduate employment will be 50% lower. You know, the number of graduates easily finding jobs this year will be 50% lower than last year. We spoke to a lot of big employers who still seem to be thinking they were continuing their graduate programs, which was a, a pleasant surprise. But what they were saying was there were far more applicants for every job than there had been in the past. It seems to be the smaller firms who are really hit by the credit crunch and recession who can't carry themselves through it. They're the guys, I think, who are Cambridge and other universities are saying just aren't, just aren't coming to look for staff. Dan, give us a business perspective of this. We used to have this period during, the, during a big boom when graduates could really pick and choose which employer they went to. 
the shoes in the other foot now, isn't it? Well, you'd like to think that business is able to see through the cycle in the sense that investing in a new graduate trainee is a sort of five, ten year programme in some cases before you get the full value out of them. And that's why it was um, depressing to see big companies like BT cutting back. But to be fair to BT, they feel that slightly misrepresented. I think they, they are still hiring some graduates this year. But their big problem is that they're also losing a lot of staff. They're cutting costs and, and um, making a lot of people redundant. And have got a big voluntary redundancy scheme as well. And they find it, it rather difficult to justify sort of filling up the funnel from one end and while they're having to sort of lose a lot of people at the other end. And Heather, is this part of this problem of the lost generation that we keep hearing about or are graduates slightly different? No, I think it's, it's very much part of that problem. And, and the issue for graduates is, of course, that in 12 months' time, when perhaps firms will be feeling, we hope, a bit more confident and perhaps thinking about resurrecting their graduate recruitment schemes, well, there'll be a whole new crop of graduates by then to come out and compete with. So it's, uh, you know, we know from the academic evidence that if you have a period out of employment, you know, when you're relatively young, it can have long-term scarring effects. And so that's pretty worrying for the people who are coming out of university now, potentially facing a period of of unemployment or or of taking a a kind of lower paid job than they might have expected. And then in a year's time facing competition from people whose skills are potentially more up-to-date and it's particularly harsh on, on students who have, I mean, this is the first generation of students coming through who've paid full tuition fees. And so they've got much larger student you know, loans than, Huge you know, stu- yeah, than students would have had five or 10 years ago. And admittedly, they don't have to pay that back until their salary gets to a certain level. But if it takes several years for their salary to get to that level, well, you know, they'll be in their 30s or whatever and still paying back their student loans. So that, you know, the, the, the economics of it for students, they were told by the government, you take on this loan, but your earning power will be hugely boosted by getting taking a degree well you know perhaps not and that that makes the arguments for for, for fees and so on look look much more difficult as well i think but actually can you clear one thing up for me i mean surely this is a logical consequence of pushing lots and lots of people to go to university you can create as many graduates as you want but you can't create that many graduate jobs I think that has been exposed by the fact that you've got a downturn now. I think in principle, if you're in a world where you're not manufacturing as much as you used to and you you should be upskilling your population, I mean, that's what it's all, all about, how we're going to compete in this globalised digital world is having people with high skills. So I don't think there's anything wrong with educating people longer and longer. I think you made a, a, a hint, though, that some of these degrees may not be as good as they as perhaps they could be and I, I don't really want I don't, I don't really know how true that is but um what do you think that's not true you think it's fine for someone to go to university of Stansted and do a sports science degree and then expect a really good job at the end of it actually media studies is the one I would pick out to to be perhaps uh, a degree with some some self-hating uh, journalist but, but no I mean the, the basic point do you think do you think something should be done for, for people even if they necessarily don't have that, that that good a degree from that good institution well, I think in the short term, probably some of the money that's been spent on, on bailing out banks could have been spent in keeping some of these people in education for another year or school leavers to give them some sort of training. The worst thing is that they've restricted the increase, the growth in, in university places this year. I'm not talking about graduates, I'm talking about people going into university from school and that's been cut back, which just seems completely and ludicrous. And also, before we get too sniffy, I think it's worth reminding that some of the that some of the um, uh, lower quality universities, that, if, if that's the right way, thinking about it actually have much higher employability rates and some of those vocational courses that we get sniffy about things like media studies okay not all those people can necessarily go into the media but they also have higher employability rates than people studying you know arts courses at sort of um, very partial Mm. universities Mm. 
Okay, let's sack off that item. But this is a subject we'll be returning to, so if you've got personal experience of the jobs market, write about it on our blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. Well, President Obama may have promised change, but for the Federal Reserve, it's more of the same. The man next to me, Ben Bernanke, has led the Fed through one of the worst financial crises that this nation and the world has ever faced. As an expert on the causes of the Great Depression, I'm sure Ben never imagined that he would be part of a team responsible for preventing another. But because of his background, his temperament, his courage, and his creativity, that's exactly what he has helped to achieve. And that is why I am reappointing him to another term as chairman of the Federal Reserve. Appointed by George Bush in 2006, Ben Bernanke was initially considered a bit of a joke. An academic expert on the Great Depression whose talk was all about deflation and a possible housing crisis. But since the credit crunch, he's pumped hundreds of billions of dollars into the economy and lowered US interest rates to near zero. OK, Heather, what do you think? Was he the right man for the job? I think... Well, I certainly think it was the right thing to do to reappoint him. I think it would look very odd now at a time when people are starting to gain confidence that a US recovery is, is around the corner. Uh, you know, for Obama to make a change here w- would look like a vote of no confidence in the Fed's strategy, which would be a very strange thing for the president to do at this stage. And I think once um, Bernanke realised how grave the crisis was, you know, he has acted pretty swiftly and, and pretty dramatically. I think part of the problem, which was shared by the Bank of England here, was that it, it took him a long time time to realise just how serious things were going to be. Ashley and I were just re-watching the hilarious um, clip from CNBC of, of Jim Cramer, their analyst, you know, shouting, he, you know, Bernanke's an academic, he doesn't understand what's going on, he is asleep, the Fed's asleep. And I think in August 2007, it wasn't clear enough to him that there was a widespread housing crisis, that that was having serious impacts on the markets, uh, you know, on the bank- and potentially on the banking system and so on. I, th- I think it took them a long time to understand how serious the crisis was. But there was someone a prominent economist who was calling all these things, Mm. Larry Summers, and Mm. he was being tipped as someone who could replace Ben Bernanke. He was, and certainly, you know, he was appointed to... um Obama's Council of Economic Advisers, and it was thought at the time, you know, Bernanke was a Republican, he was appointed by Bush, uh, and it was thought that Summers certainly was touting himself for the job, but... um, one thing is that Summers is a somewhat objectionable character and seems to make enemies around the place. Um, you know, he's not a man who's burdened with self-doubt, let's say. Um, but also, as I say, I think, you know, Bernanke's played, a, he was given a, a very bad hand by Greenspan, a huge bubble to clean up. Since he's realised what's going on, he's made a pretty good fist of it, a good fist of explaining also, but he's a good public face because he explains quite clearly what's going on and what, what you know, what prognosis is. So I think it would have been a mistake to put Summers in at this stage. Actually, we've heard this need for stability argument before when Mervyn King was reconfirmed and I think there are some people who thought it was a mistake even then to have have him back in. What do you reckon? I think Mervyn King as as Bernanke has has realised how bad this thing is. I think they were both, as Heather mentioned, very slow to recognise just how bad things were. Now Mervyn is what's being described as on the team and he's actually sort of the leading dove on the committee, if you like, now that David Blanchflower has left. Um, I know there were some political faces last year who thought it was a mistake to reappoint Mervyn King and uh, but now uh, and we were certainly as a paper critical of his of his insistence that rates might have to go up to choke off inflation while the world while Rome was literally crumbling around his ears but I think he he's woken up like Bernanke has and and I think in the same way it's probably best to have continuity especially when 
when these guys seem to have woken up. Dan, looking at the bigger picture, does Bernanke's reappointment tell us that we're no longer looking at a crisis, we're looking at the exit strategy from our crisis policies? Uh, I think it's probably too soon to say that. What slightly kind of freaked me out is the continuing cult of personality around central bankers. I mean, it's a sort of odd term since they're not exactly sort of huge personalities in the traditional sense. But they are. We do fetishize both the Fed, uh, particularly the Fed in the US, as the sort of the the savior. Um, and that was partly the problem in the, in pre- in previous bubbles. Everybody looked to Greenspan, the famous Greenspan put. That's you know, if if the market was always going to keep falling, then Greenspan. If the market ever got too bad he'd be in there to sort it out and we're back here again we kind of think that actually you know look president obama has broken off his holiday um, in martha's vineyard to announce this guy's reappointment i mean it's as if he's sort of if he is if he thinks this is the single most reassuring thing he can do for the economy he may be true in a sort of narrow technical way but surely we kind of got to think beyond just sort of you know reinflating the bubble and sort of having you know putting all our faith in central bankers i'm sorry if that's quite convenient room, but, well it's uh, quite convenient for um, politicians that though mm. isn't it it's you know if, if, the more of a public figure you make and the more public trust you put in your the head of your central bank then you know the more it gives you someone to sort of blame if, if yeah, things he- go he- wrong he- I guess he- that's a cynical view but. if you look back just a few months the end of 2008 people were saying well central banking is never going to be the same again these guys we we, we put them up on pedestals they're not mm. worth it mm. what's happened to all of that talk? well I mean I'm still not confident although there are some signs of recovery you know I think the rally in the stock markets for example has probably been too aggressive and you know one of the reasons share prices are rocketing at the moment is because US firms are slashing staff and extraordinary rate unemployment is very high. You know, is that good for demand? No, it's not. And m- might we be in, you know, looking at a double dip in the US economy? Possibly. So I think that we may be in one of those lulls of which we've had several since this crisis began. And actually, you know, we might might be asking ourselves later in the year, you know, what's why is depart- demand not come back? Where's deflation? You know, are, should we be worried about deflation and other things? So I, I don't think the doubts about central bankers uh, have evaporated by any means. OK, actually, final word to you. Bernanke's got another four years in the job. What do you reckon those four years are going to look like? What would be his big problems? His big problems are designing a decent exit strategy from where we are, but I don't think they're going to have to exit yet. I think there's a growing feeling that the US may be tipping into deflation quite soon, so he may still be having to do more stimulus to get them out before he starts to withdraw it actually i think it could be quite a bumpy path for the u.s i mean the the dream scenario is that all this stimulus works but it's actually just sort of government running a deficit bank cutting rates to zero it, it, it may work but as the stimulus ends particularly from the government it may just sort of dip again so i think it could be quite it's not that he's just going to sail serenely through calm waters as a recovery gathers pace i don't think that's the case at all this is the business with aditya chakraborty Now, what does a grubby-free local newspaper have to do with state-of-the-art economic thinking? Well, the answer this week appears to be quite a lot. Cast your mind back a few months and the hot new theory for business people and media execs was that everything had to be free. And the philosopher of free was Chris Anderson, who explained his ideas to The Guardian's tech guru, Charles Arthur. Free is a word that we're super familiar with, and and also the more you think about it, the, the more confusing it is. Um, you know, free has different meanings. You know, free is in liberty, freedom. Free is in no price, and then free has this different economic meaning as well, which is sort of a trick, a marketing trick. You know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Um, you know, you get what you pay for, and then strangely, it's turned into the, sort of the, the default economic model of the of the internet age. And so, I thought there ought to be a we ought to have an economic theory to explain how free can be the default price for everything online, and that was the 
that was the beginning of the book. The thinking behind your your, your book, your, your whole thesis, is that with the internet especially, the cost of reproduction is effectively zero. Ideas don't know national boundaries. Things can spread. They can be multiplied. That the cost of getting an idea from one place to another goes to zero. What sort of economic impact does that then have? I mean, the, the, the main effect has been you get a lot more of everything. I mean, you, you know, the old model was that everything needed an, everything needed a business model to get out there. So, you know, only, only professional media got through the scarce distribution channels of the 20th century, radio, television, print, etc. Um, what free did, and by free I mean sort of, again, both liberty and no cost, what, what opening the tools of production to everybody did is got a lot of stuff out of there. So media then, the, the sort of the traditional media, so to speak, um, is that threatened by this enormous growth in content, or is it something that it can use? Is there a way to, in effect, make money from free? And that is, in fact, what the, what the book is about. I mean, the, the observation that information wants to be free is now coming up 30 years old. Um, the, the observation that the underlying economics of digital distribution allows things to be free is also decades decades old. Um, what we're getting smart about is how to make money from free. Um, you know, now... The idea of making money from free is, is also 100 years old. That's called advertising. And now we're having to invent a new way of making money from free, and uh, that's called freemium. And it's, it's not new either, but it, people are getting much smarter about it. And freemium is free plus premium, where you have a free version and a premium version. You give away the free version to 80%, 90% of your audience, and then you convert maybe 10 or 20% to paid, to paid users. And that is, uh, that's where all the really interesting innovations happening, a, a lot in the games world. Um, but uh, in software, as software becomes a service, you're seeing freemium become the default model. And I think that may be the future of media as well. And Malcolm Gladwell took you to task in The New Yorker, saying that to call free a sort of a law of economic gravity, to him it doesn't hold up. He thinks the law of economic gravity works in rather the other direction, that eventually stuff has to be paid for. Someone's paying the bills. That, uh, you know, he sort of took the example of YouTube, where someone's estimated to lose half a billion dollars. He said, you know, actually, YouTube is, uh, you know, if it was a bank, it'd be eligible for TARP funds. What's your, what's your response to that? You know, my, my response is that it's early days. Um, I agree. Everything, every, you know, that, 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 you know, fundamentally the costs must be repaid. And the question is not, is not that they shouldn't. I mean, I think it's, I think it's a misunderstanding of free that, that you don't make money of free. The book is about entirely about how to make money um, from free. And, you know, what are we, five years into YouTube's existence? I think, it's a, I, I, I think you know, it'll take a while to figure out how to turn it into a proper business, but that day will come. Well, one man who isn't buying it is Rupert Murdoch, who's announced that he's closing his local free sheet, the London Paper. Not only that, but he also plans to start charging for news on the web. Dan, let's begin with you. What Murdoch's really done is point out the Empress got no new clothes on, hasn't he? Uh, I think he'd like to think he's done that. I think he'd like to think with a stroke of his pen he can um, suddenly sort of call the, the, the death of free. I mean, that's, that's clearly what um, people at News Corp that I've been speaking to in recent days think is going on there at the moment. They're delighted with the London paper closed because they feel it's the first step in this brave new world that they're, um, uh, they're embarking on with, with, with charging. And, you know, good luck to them. And there's a lot of us uh, journalists who like to see them um, succeed. But I think there's a danger in viewing this through the narrow prism of journalism 
journalism, particularly newspaper journalism. And the trouble is that most of the comment around this is by newspaper journalists who have a particular axe to grind. And um, I, I, uh, I shelled out my 15 quid for, um, for Chris's uh, book uh, and, and was sad enough to read it on holiday. Um, and actually, um, he's right. It, it's full of stories of people who made a lot of money out of free. It sounds paradoxical, but you only have to read the first page of his book to realize what he's talking about. He's talking about firms like Google that make pots and pots of money by giving one thing away for free and then charging in all sorts of other ways. And it's not, and, and he's right, advertising is another example. So we have to move beyond thinking about this really sterile debate about whether or not you charge for newspaper websites, which is just a fraction of the world, the brave new world we're going into. Um, and um, it may be that newspaper uh, business model is, is, is screwed for all sorts of other reasons, but it's not a reason to extrapolate and say that he's talking nonsense. Okay, Ashley, let's not do the journalist perspective, let's do the economist perspective. One of the most famous phrases in economics is, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And all this talk about free ignores basic economics, doesn't it? Well, I think it does. But I think, I think also the free book it has a point that you, know, if, um, that you can try to make money out of free. The question, I think, for well, although we're not talking direct specifically about newspapers, is I think economics would recognise that when you get a technological technological change that pushes down the price of something virtually to free eventually a model will work out that pays for that but it can take decades and it can't it may not be doable in five years and you might get the death of old industries as a result of that and new ones grow up that replace them and and heather i mean ashley's got a point it can take decades to work out how Mm. to make a business out of a bit of technology that's lying around one of the things that strikes me is that we don't have theories about how to make money out of platinum or copper or combination (laughs) boilers because we know how to how Mm. to treat those in in business Mm. so the fact we're still theorizing about the internet nearly two decades on tells you that we've got a bit of a problem actually getting to make any money for us yeah, this phrase monetization is horrible phrase. Clunky phrase monetization has been invented, you know, to sort of deal with this issue. But you know, that, that's slightly my problem with it is that the idea of free is, is is not such a new one, really. You know, Mr. Gillette gave away his razors because he could get people to buy the blades. You know, uh, it, you make cameras very cheap and people spend more money on film than they do on the cameras. You know, the reason that sportsmen are paid so much is that the, it costs very little to distribute. You know, film or video of, of football matches now so the audience is much larger you know that audience is paying less than you pay for a ticket to the ground but it's still willing to pay something and that you know that to me it's there's a kind of very old idea of economics there um you know which is that there are different kind of business models and different ways of making money out of things but it's not clear to me it would be it would be a much better contribution if he'd come up with a way to make money out of it i'm not sure although well, i'm coming from the does. position of not mean, having read the book yeah, so I'm there, <laughs> there are probably at least 100 examples in there of businesses that have made money i think the, the, the key point though that you raise which is absolutely right is that there are echoes of this in economic history and the one that i think is most persuasive is the industrial revolution when um the introduction of um uh, uh, of steam power um for example or the use of coal as, a, as an energy f- um source um made um power um, and energy relatively free compared to what they were before when it was you having to hire a bloke with a spade or when you were having to sort of use whale oil to heat to, to light your house the introduction of electricity or, or, or steam generation unlocked a whole world of the industrial revolution because it became a, 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 a trivial cost in the big scheme of, of making things mm-hmm. now clearly we know now that's not a trivial cost those costs those inputs are quite expensive to us now partly because we recognize the externalities of the environmental pollution and those sorts of things 
But what that unleashed, what that the, the, what the steam engine did to the world, um, took 150 years to pan out. Arguably, mm. we're still living mm. in the industrial revolution, um, and I think that's the kind of revolution we're just on the cusp of with 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 communications technology. And so, to 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 expect to have all the answers in year 10 or something, mm. I think is unrealistic. No, I think that's absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. The same with the arrival of railways. You know, people lost complete fortunes because they bought railway stocks because they thought it was going to transform the economy you know overnight it did transform the economy absolutely but that didn't mean that everyone who who thought they were going to make money out of it in a certain way in the first 5 10 15 years did they didn't they you know they lost the shirts off their backs all right let's go around the table to to close the discussion do you think we'll still be talking about free in 5 years time ever mm-hmm. No, I don't actually. I, I'm, uh, but I'm, I'm trying to say that without sounding as if I'm coming from a newspaper perspective, which obviously dinosaur, I am, because yeah. that's that's the economic model, I, you know, I, in which I happen to work day to day. But I, I do think that if eventually, you know, whatever the co- there are some costs of production, they are not zero, and they have to be covered somehow. Dan. I don't think we'll be talking about it for, for, for a different reason. I think we're talking about it at the moment because it's a neat buzzword that somebody just wrote a book about and made a bit of money and because all journalists are obsessed with it because of the, the state our industry is in. But we won't be talking about it in the future in the same way that we don't talk about the the, uh, the, you know, the advertising model or the sort of the, the industrial model or all those sorts of things we just kind of inculcated into our economic thinking. Ashley? I think we probably won't be talking about it because I think this big recession that we're having globally is forcing the issue. It's forcing people to come to terms with that. That's why, to go back to newspapers, sorry, is is, is Murdoch's coming out to, to talk about charging because this industry is looking bad and some so are some others. So if, if something's new is going to emerge, I think it's gonna, it might emerge a bit more quickly because of the recession. Well, that's it for this free podcast. Thank you to Ashley Seeger, Dan Roberts and Heather Stewart. There's more comment and analysis on everything you've heard on The Guardian's business website. And if you want to have your say on anything you've heard, leave a comment on our blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. Our producer this week was Francesca Panetta, while I've been, as ever, Adit Chakraborty. That was a business. Thanks for listening. <laughs>